Hallelujah. Psalm 64. Psalm 64. Many songs are birthed in the fire of a trial. Many sermons are birthed there as well. We're expecting out of this ordeal that we are going through, especially Darla, that God is birthing something on a much higher level. And we want to share with you this morning what we believe a principle that God is observing, we're working through in all of this process. And we know we are not the only ones who go through these kinds of things. As we read through Psalm 64, see if you can identify with the complaints, the lament, the grief the psalmist has. Because as we will discern as we read this, he's under attack. People are out to destroy him. The enemy is plotting his death, his destruction, to do him in. And he senses that he's being overwhelmed with circumstances and trials and the viciousness of enemies coming against him. And he's crying out to God and it appears that God seems to be silent or God for some reason seems to be very, very slow in responding. Can anybody identify this before we even read it? In Psalm 64, listen to him. Hear my voice, O God, in my prayer. Preserve my life from fear of the enemy. Hide me from the secret counsel of the wicked, from the insurrection of the workers of iniquity who wet their tongue like a sword and they bend their bows to shoot their arrows, even bitter words. That they may shoot in secret at the perfect. Suddenly do they shoot at him and they not afraid. They encourage themselves in an evil matter. They commune of laying snares privately and they say, well, who will ever know about it? Who will see them? They scheme to do evil, searching out iniquities. They accomplish a diligent search. Both the inward thought of every one of them and the heart. Nevertheless, the next verse says, But God, that is worth shouting about. No matter what and who plots what against you, the counsel of the Lord still stands. And no matter who schemes what, they never play the last card. God's the last speaker at the conference. <laughs> he gets the last word. <laughs> Why do you say Jimmy like that? <laughs> But God, I am so glad for the but gods I can find in the Bible. It says, but God shall shoot at them with an arrow. In verse 3, they were shooting their arrows of bitter words. But God shall shoot at them with an arrow suddenly. It takes God a long time to act suddenly. Amen. But suddenly shall they be wounded. Verse 8. So shall they make their own tongue to fall upon themselves. Allow me to paraphrase that for you in a little better modern English. God will destroy them with their very own weapons. You realize that Goliath's head came off with Goliath's sword. God will destroy them with their own weapons. What the enemy has devised to destroy you will not destroy you because the Bible says, but God. And instead of you being destroyed, the enemy himself will be destroyed on his own weapons. 
And you will be promoted because of this. I like it, don't you? The Lord said to Jehoshaphat, the battle is not yours, but God's. The Bible says there's no temptation taking you, but it's such as come to every man. But God, with the temptation, will make a way of escape that you may be able to bear. But God. The scripture says we were in our, in our weakness. We were without strength. In, in, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. But God, in our position of weakness and no strength, Paul the Apostle says, but God commended his love towards us. I'm glad for the but gods of scripture. Perhaps the best one is found in the book of Acts chapter 13, where it says how the world crucified Jesus, how they plotted against him, how they did to him everything that was written about what they would do to him. And they laid him in the grave and he was dead. But it says in Acts 13.30, but God, even death itself, could not thwart the purpose of God. Thank God for that phrase. But God. Can you say that? But God. I want you to begin to visualize and think of your own trials, your own circumstances. And the enemy has schemed against you to destroy you, to do you in. Think of Jesus lying in the grave. And then say, when the enemy's done his worst, but God. Hallelujah. Take your best shot, devil. Because I serve the but God. <laughs> Come on, devil. <laughs> but God. <laughs> But God shall shoot at them with an arrow. Suddenly shall they be wounded. And I want in your mind to see this picture of an arrow. The psalmist says that the enemy shooting arrows at you, but God is going to shoot them with the arrow. Get it in your mind, the arrow. Because there's a principle here. After God gives you a word, I can guarantee you something. You will be opposed. I don't claim to be a prophet, but I can say this. After you hear God, you will hear other voices. You will be opposed. And think it not strange that after you have a word from the Lord, a vision from God, a, a, a prophetic word from God, think it not strange that when your whole life all of a sudden goes completely backwards to what God has just told you. You feel like you are an arrow that God is about, but instead of the arrow going that direction, all the pressure in your life is released to push it backwards. Backwards. You're going backwards. But church, I've got news for you. You think the devil is pushing you backwards. The truth is, is that God is loading you against in the bowl. And the more pressure backwards, the more energy it goes into that bowstring. So thank God for backwards pressure. Why? Because it takes a long time to draw it back. But the further back it goes, the more pressure in that bowstring, the more energy. And then when it says, but God. And the enemy will wish he never did it. He will wish he never opposed and sent you backwards. You think the enemy is pushing you backwards. The truth is, is God is loading the arrow of your life in his bowl. 
suddenly shall they be wounded. They will make their own tongue to fall upon themselves. It's going to go back on his own head. All that see them will flee away. And all men shall fear and declare the work of God. For they shall wisely consider of his doing. The righteous shall be glad in the Lord and shall trust in him. And all the upright in heart. Hallelujah. But God. One of the stories that has really come alive to us in this whole ordeal is the story of Esther in the Old Testament. I will assume everybody here is familiar with the plot, the theme of the book. The king's name was Ahasuerus. He appointed a very wicked man named Haman as his prime minister, president, whatever he was called. Haman was a very wicked man. And due to this prestigious appointment, he thought that everybody should bow down to him when he appeared in public. And for fear of their lives, everybody bid, did bow down, that is, except the one named Mordecai. Haman hated Mordecai for his insults, wanted to kill him. And so he not only wants to kill Mordecai, but he says, let's do away with all of the Jews. And the Holocaust is planned and the date is set. The king does not realize that his queen Esther is a Jew. He has no idea that Mordecai is related to her. When Mordecai hears what's about to happen, he says, you've got to talk to the king about it. So she prepares a banquet. And in the banquet, she invites the king Ahasuerus and Haman. Haman is just elated. He hasn't been invited to the queen's banquet. And with joy, he goes to this banquet to be honored. But Mordecai does not bow down to him. And that puts off his whole night. And when he goes home, he's glad to have been at the banquet. But he says to his wife, this Mordecai, his wife comes up with this scheme. We'll kill him early. Why don't you erect a gallows? If my memory serves me right, 50 cubits high. That's 75 feet tall. Erect the gallows. Make a public example out of him. And, and Haman says, yes, wonderful. And so he begins the construction of these huge gallows to destroy Mordecai. But you know the story very well. I don't have to go through it. At the end of the day, Oh, forgive me, that's so Irish. At the end of the day, it was not Mordecai that hung on the gallows. It was Haman himself. Haman hung on the old gallows that he built to destroy God's people. He's the one that died on them. And Mordecai was promoted. He took Haman's place and he ruled the empire in favor of the Jews. And that story has taken on so much meaning to Darla and myself because the enemy has sought to destroy a ministry. It is not the ministry that will be destroyed. It will be the enemy himself. God is going to turn it around. Allow me to explain. Last autumn, in the month of October, Darla and I had the honor and the privilege of working with Ronnie Dawson, which most of you, I'm sure, know, at the drop-in ministries. And we went to Austria, suffering for Jesus in Austria, in the Alp Mountains, in an 800-year-old castle, suffering for Jesus. <laughs> What Ronnie's ministry, Drop-In Ministries, did is that they financed bringing in, I think it was 35 pastors from Belarus. I think there were eight from Albania that came. And at his own expense, Ronnie put on a conference for these pastors, many of them who had never been out of their countries before. 
brought them to a conference where they had to listen to me three times a day for a week. But Darla led the worship, which was an interesting experience for her. She's a, a psalmist, she's a worship leader, a songwriter, and she doesn't speak Belarusian or Russian. Neither does she speak Albanian. And of course, most of them did not speak English. And she was required to lead worship in this mixed atmosphere. It's only when we sang hallelujah that everybody said the same word. But it was a beautiful atmosphere. And in Darla's life, there have been so many prophetic words by prophetic ministries spoken over her life for so many years that have said that God is going to use you in a healing worship. That just in the atmosphere of praise and worship, that miracles would take place as people were brought into the presence of the Lord, and healings would take place, and deliverances would take place for no other reason that you're standing in the awesome presence of God as the Spirit of God would sweep through the place. And that has been spoken over her life so many times. And you know, when you hear a word like that, it creates a, such a sense of hunger. When my wife prays, it comes from... Well, I don't know, in Canada we say from the gut. I mean, it just comes from deep, deep longing. Oh God, perform your word. Perform your word. Do what you have said. Like Mary said to the Lord, do what you have spoken to your handmaiden. Be it to me according to your word. A groaning from within. Well, when we were there in Austria, on the fourth night of the conference, without anybody asking for prayer, with no word of prophecy saying, I think the Lord wants to do this. No laying on of hands. Nothing. Except multi-languages coming into the presence of God in praise and worship. There was a lady there from Belarus that had a growth over her eye that she had for a year and it needed surgery. It was getting worse and worse. This condition was just growing. But on the fourth night of this conference in Austria, as Darla was leading worship in this atmosphere, this growth dissolved and disappeared. It created an interesting evening. <laughs> Gifts of the Spirit began to operate and people prophesied to one another in different languages and we had to have interpreters to interpret prophetic words and it just broke loose on the fourth night of that conference. It was wonderful. And here we are seeing the beginning of many years of groaning before God for the fulfillment of these things. But the enemy wants to stop it before it starts. Little did, my, little did my wife know that at that very moment she had cancer in her own body. Had no knowledge of it. She had a suspicion, but no knowledge, no nothing confirmed. But you know, when my wife comes out of this, notice I said when, not yet. When my wife comes out of this, and she leads God's people in worship, and when these miracles take place, the devil is going to wish he never pushed the arrow backwards. Because every time she will lead worship and somebody else gets healed, I'm going to, with glee, watch Haman hang on his own devil. And he is going to hang again and again, and again, and again, because the Bible says, suddenly, God will shoot at them. Suddenly, they shall be wounded. The Bible says, I'm going to make your enemy fall upon himself. Yes. I like the story. This principle is found over and over and over in the Bible. God's people and pressure seem to be married to one another. But there is a principle here. I would like you to go to the New Testament, 
to Philippians chapter 1. But in order for us to grasp this concept, there has to come in our hearts a deep work of the Spirit. In our teaching yesterday about the Holy Spirit, and I believe in the Holy Ghost, in our teaching about the Holy Spirit, we need to be delivered, if we're going to fulfill the purpose of God, from the, the mindset, from how do I benefit from this, the bigger picture is what is God gaining out of this. We are filled with the Holy Spirit to fulfill God's purposes, not just to have an experience. There's a goal that God has got in mind. Now, in Philippians chapter 1, Paul the Apostle is writing to encourage the, a discouraged church. That's one of the reasons he writes. Now, it should be the other way around because Paul's the one in prison and they're the ones who aren't. But they are discouraged. And let me tell you why they are discouraged. It's because they have been praying for Paul to be supernaturally delivered from, pres from prison. You will remember in the history of the Philippian church that it got its birth in Acts chapter 16, where Paul had cast an evil spirit out of a, this girl, this slave girl, and as a result he ended up in jail. As far as I know, this is the first imprisonment for Paul the Apostle in jail. He and Silas. At midnight they are singing praises, and you know the story how the earthquake comes. And everybody is set free, and the Philippian jailer gets saved in his house. And a church is birthed at Philippi because God did a miracle jailbreak. Now these Philippians see Paul in prison in another place, in another situation, and they're saying, in our personal history as a movement, in our personal history, we have recognized the ability of God to deliver people from prison. And we have recognized that God birthed churches through doing this kind of miracle ministry. And so the Philippian church is praying for Paul, send another earthquake, deliver the man from prison again. And they are praying and confessing and believing, and I don't know if they're fasting, but they are just believing God because they remember in their own history how God delivered the mighty apostle Paul from prison. But as they pray, and pray, and pray, and pray, and pray, and pray, and pray, the fact remains the cancer's still in the body. The fact remains Paul is still in prison. For all of their believing God, the fact remains he's going to go to trial and most likely he's going to be executed. And they are discouraged. Why is God not answering prayer like we've seen him do so many times before? And Paul wants to correct that attitude. Because church, when you and I signed up, our comfort was not what we signed up for. What we signed up for is whatever promotes the gospel. Our comfort is not the issue. What promotes the gospel is. And so Paul writes, and he says in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 12, to these people who are discouraged, he says, I want you to understand something, brothers. You think your prayer has been in vain. You think God is not answering your prayer. Remember, the purpose of God is to promote the gospel, not to grant comfort. And he says, I want you to understand something, that the things that have happened to me have resulted in the furtherance of the gospel. The more pressure that goes backwards, the further the gospel flies. The things that have happened to me have resulted in the furtherance of the gospel. Because I am in prison, Paul says, everybody's out preaching. My ministry's been multiplied. 
Because some are preaching because they sympathize with me and they want to take up the slack. Some are preaching to spite me. He says, I don't care what the motivation is. The fact is that the ministry has been multiplied by me staying here. The things that have happened to you, the things that happened to me, will result in the furtherance of the gospel. The issue is not whether I live or I die. The issue is Christ magnified. The issue is not whether I'm healed or not. The issue is does this promote the cause of the gospel? And you and I have got to get a new center in our thinking. Our welfare and our comfort is not the issue. The promotion of the gospel is. And that takes a bit of radical work to think that way. But it's the way the Bible thinks. You've got to come to that. This principle is found in the Bible over and over and over. I want to share with you a few stories from Scripture that illustrate this principle so that you can understand and realize that when it looks like your ministry is going backwards, the devil's not pushing you back, God's drawing the bowl. Hear the word of the Lord. When the arrow is drawn back tight and you're aiming at something, the more energy that is put into that arrow, it's going to fly further. But to get the distance, you have to adjust your aim higher. If you keep it parallel with what you were looking at before, you hit the ground faster. Simple matter of physics. You go straight up, it comes right down. If you shoot straight out, it hits the ground further. If you want it to go the furthest distance, a 45-degree angle, where it's neither going up or down, it's going out. And if you're under a lot of pressure and being pushed back and back and back and back, you're not going under. God's saying, adjust your aim for things higher. Make the mental adjustment in your vision. Daniel, chapter 3. You know the story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I have two sons. We used to tell them Bible stories. You know what their names are? <laughs> Jeremy and Jesse. <laughs> and you know when we tell the stories, this one used to be shake a bed, make a bed, and into bed you go. <laughs> But it says in chapter 3 of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar is the king. And I want you to take the time to visualize this. You and I read these stories, but we don't read it. It says, Nebuchadnezzar, verse 1, the king made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits. Do you have any idea how high that is? 90 feet tall. Statue made out of gold. Six cubits wide, nine feet wide. Do you have any idea how big and how much this thing is worth? He was related to Saddam Hussein. <laughs> Wants his image to tower over everything. This massive gold statue is set up in the plain of Jiren in the province of Babylon. Now, let's remember that Babylon is a world empire. He is the antichrist of his day. Let's realize that this is not a small nation. This is a world empire, the ruling nation on the face of the earth. Every other country is subject to this man. And I want you to notice in verse 2 who he calls to the dedication. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent to gather together the princes, the governors, the captains, judges, treasurers, counselors, sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces were summoned together in this one place. In other words, the Antichrist of the day is going to demand worship of himself. And he has called every world leader of importance to come and show their allegiance by bowing before this 90 by 9 statue of gold. 
And in case you miss who was called to do this, it says in verse 3, then the princes, the governors, captains, judges, treasurers, counselors, sheriffs, and all the rulers of all the provinces were gathered together. Have you got in your mind's eye what's happening here? And the herald goes out and says, when the band begins to play, the whole world will bow down. If you don't bow down, as a little incentive for you, if you don't bow down, we have a fiery furnace to destroy anybody who refuses to do this. But what's a man of God supposed to do? Thou shalt worship the Lord and the Lord only will you serve. Here is the enemy's tactic to destroy men of faith. When the music began to play, the whole world bows down. Can you just imagine the masses of presidents and kings and governors and prime ministers and sheriffs and judges and captains and treasurers all bowing down? In the sea of humanity bowing down, there are three men that stand. Shadrach. When news comes to King Nebuchadnezzar that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not bow down, he is not just a little angry. He is furious. And he summons them and he says, why is it that you will not bow down? Now when the band plays, you fall. And they said, we don't even have to think how we're going to respond. The Bible teaches us we worship the Lord and Him only will we serve. Our God can deliver us and if He doesn't deliver us, then we're not going to bow down anyway. Now, if Nebuchadnezzar was mad before, he is filled with rage. And he says, get that fiery furnace, turn it up seven times. Let the heat of this fiery trial burn into their lives. Well, is the enemy going to destroy? Or is the Lord drawing back the arrow of the gospel? this. You know the story. Nebuchadnezzar gets the strongest of the strong in his army to bind them. The fire is so intense that the strongest of the strong perish from the heat. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have been bound together hand and foot and they're thrown in and they fall on the ground. But church, let me tell you something. The only thing that was burnt in the fire is your bondage. The fire will burn away that which restricts you. Why? Because there's a fourth man in the fire with you. And he looks like the Son of God. And Nebuchadnezzar looks in there and he says, one, two, three. <laughs> but I see four. And I don't think I want to tackle with that fourth man <laughs> in the fire. Come out. And the three men come out, and I guess the fourth man enjoyed the heat. I don't know. The three men come out, and their hair is not even singed. The smell of smoke isn't even on them. They came out free men. Without restriction, without bondage. But I want you to see the end of the story because it appears as if the enemy is pushing the arrow of your ministry backwards. But I have news for you. The issue is not your comfort. The issue is the effectiveness of the gospel. And while it appears you are being pushed backwards, the truth of the matter is the effectiveness of your ministry is being drawn back into the bowl by God. Look at the end of the story. In Daniel chapter 3, let's pick it up at verse 27. It says, And the princes and the governors and the captains and the king's counselors being gathered together, let's realize that this incident took place in front of all the world leaders that were gathered around from the entire globe. The whole world was there and they witnessed this miracle. You talk about promotion for the gospel, brother. 
It says they all saw these men, upon whose bodies the fire had no power, nor was the hair of their head singed, neither were their coats changed, nor the smell of fire had passed on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar spoke. Who? Who's going to do this? Nebuchadnezzar himself. He spoke. He says, Blessed be the God of Shadrach and of Meshach and of Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him. They have changed the king's word. They've yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Nebuchadnezzar, the heathen king, worldwide ruler, the Antichrist of his day, says, I am making a decree that every people, my God, I have a heathen king proclaiming the gospel worldwide. I think the pressure did not destroy Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When the fire was turned up sevenfold, and they came through the fiery trial that was about to try them. It resulted in the furtherance of the gospel. I make a decree that every people, nation, and language, if they say anything amiss, boy, what a turn of events. If they say anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they shall be cut in pieces. Yuck. And their houses shall be made a dunghill. <laughs> Pew. Why? Because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. And it says in verse 30, Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. You think you're going to be destroyed because the fire is hot. You are not going to be destroyed. You are going to be delivered from your bondage. You are not going to be destroyed. You're going to be promoted. But there is a destruction that takes place, and that is a destruction against the enemy. God's going to turn it around and use it to promote his own cause. What kind of fiery furnace are you in? How backwards is your ministry going? What pressure is pushing on you? It's okay. Let's remember who's in control. It's not the enemy pushing you backwards. It appears that way. It's God drawing the bolt. And in case we don't get the point, go to Daniel chapter 6. Because I kind of think you should be shouting by now. So I guess I have to tell you another story. In Daniel chapter 6, this time it's Darius who is the king. And the story is about Daniel. In verse 1 it says, And it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 princes, which should be over the whole kingdom. And over these there were three presidents, of whom Daniel was the first that the princess might give accounts to them that the king should have no damage. This Daniel was preferred above the other presidents and princes because an excellent spirit was in him and the king thought to set him over the whole realm. Well, I guess politics have not changed much over the years because when you don't want someone else to have the top job and you want it, you dig up dirt and expose it. But here we have a problem with Daniel. There's no dirt to dig up. The man is pure and clean in every respect of his life. He invents schemes of destruction. And so what they said, the only way we're going to get Daniel is that we create a law that's against his religion. That's how we can accuse him. And they don't tell Darius of their motivation in all of this. But they appealed to the eagle of this worldwide empire, and they said something like this, We need to unite the whole world in worship. Got to worship. And so what we think to do, King Darius, 
is you should pass the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be altered. That if any man makes any request of any god or any other man for the next 30 days, let him be thrown in the lion's den. Well, apparently Darius was related to Saddam Hussein as well. Oh, yes, it appeals to his ego, and yes, that will unite the whole world, and not realizing that this was the secret scheme we read about in Psalm 64 to destroy the man of God. So Darius signs the law, but then a lions is awaiting anybody who prays to any man or God for the next 30 days. Daniel, knowing that the law is signed, nevertheless opens his windows three times a day towards Jerusalem, falls on his knees, and makes his supplication to his God. He knew he had broke the law, and his enemies knew that he would break the law, that he would serve God before he'd serve man. He's guilty of a crime punishable by death. They catch him. Daniel does not deny it. But Darius realizes too late that this was a plot to destroy. You see, the intent was to put Daniel in the chief position. Once that was known, the pressure came to push him back. Push him back. What has God spoken over your life? What is the intention? What's the purpose? What's the plan of God? What vision has he given you? What passion has he put into your heart? And it becomes known. You know the story. Daniel is thrown into the lion's den. King Darius has a fitful night. Doesn't eat. Doesn't sleep. No music. And in the morning, oh, did you hear that one? Weeping may endure for a night, but joy. In the morning. You have turned my morning, the other kind, into dancing for me. But in the morning, Darius runs to the lion's den. They take off the lid and, Daniel, is the God that you serve able to deliver you? And out of the den, O king, live forever. <laughs> Get that man out of there. And Daniel comes up and there's not a scratch on him. And Darius says, where are your accusers? Let's see how their God does. God will make your enemies to be destroyed in the very weapon they have put together to destroy you. This is awful. But your Bible says, read it for yourself, that they got these wicked men and their wives, be careful who you marry, and their children, and threw them into the lion's den. And your Bible says, before they hit bottom, their bones were already broken. You see, the cats had spent the previous night fasting. <laughs> Look at the end of the story. Let's understand the principle. What looks like the enemy is destroying me and limiting me. What looks like that it is, it's just stopping me from being effective. Why am I sitting here in this prison when it looks like everything is shut down? The truth is God is causing the gospel to be promoted because of it. And look at the end of the story. It says in Dan verse 25 of Daniel 6, Then King Darius, who... King Darius wrote unto all people, all nations, and all languages. This resulted in the translation of the scriptures into every known language on the face of the earth. And you thought, the only issue at stake here was you. You know, in Darla's case, this has turned into a worldwide permeate. For the last eight years, I've crisscrossed this globe so many times. And people all over the world have taken her into their heart. And I have never known from my experience so many people from so many places to be so focused in prayer one thing at a time. The people here in Northern Ireland have been awesome in their prayer support. The people of Scotland have been awesome in their prayer support. 
In Albania, they have gone into fasting for her. In Belarus, the churches pray for her. In the poverty-stricken of Haiti, they hold all-night prayer meetings on her behalf. They have pastors who at the stroke of midnight stop whatever they're doing. Guess they must stay up all night. They stop at the stroke of midnight and they pray and intercede half an hour for her every day. There are people in Canada who are praying. There are people in the United States who are praying. There are people in Africa and Zimbabwe. People in Ghana. People in Tanzania who are praying. There are people I don't even know who are praying. And you think, God, where's the answer to, where's the prayer? Of all this prayer, why is it released yet? I would have you to know that your prayers are being answered. I would have you to know that the appearance is she's being pushed backwards. But I would have you to know that every prayer is assisting the loading of that arrow into God's bow. And you think the concern is just a healing. It is more than that. It is the release of a worldwide ministry. It is. Because when she comes out of this, everybody wants a piece of the action with her. And she thinks, I've been traveling. It's awesome. Verse 25, Then King Darius wrote unto all people and nations and languages that dwell on the earth, Peace be multiplied unto you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom men tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that awesome? Here you have the king of the whole world saying, you've got to worship the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and steadfast forever. And his kingdom is that which will not be destroyed. And his dominion shall be even unto the end. He delivers and rescues and he works signs and wonders in heaven and earth who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Man, this guy's ministry went worldwide because the enemy tried to stop him before God promoted him. It's a normal principle in Scripture. After God declares His word over your life, the enemy will try to stop it from being fulfilled. It will appear to you that He's doing it. And you're being more confined instead of more released. But things are not what they appear to be. It appears as if the devil's shoving you backwards. The truth is, God's loading you in His boat. Hallelujah. Your ministry will go a whole lot further because of it. A whole lot further. I don't need to tell you the story of Joseph. You've heard me preach that on previous trips. But I know when Joseph came out of prison, he got married and had two kids. Jesse was not one of their names. It was Manasseh. You know why he called this kid Manasseh? Because it means to forget. Yes, it hurts when you're being pushed back. Yes, it hurts to go through this kind of stuff. It's very, very painful. But I have news for you. After the arrow is shot out, you will forget. The pain of the childbirth will be forgotten for the joy of the child. God will cause you to forget, no matter how difficult it is right now. The other kid he named Ephraim. You know what that means? Fruitful. He says, because of this, in all of this, through all of this, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. God will promote you through the whole ordeal. Praise Him. Praise Him. Praise.
He makes everything work together for good. Jacob said, all these things are against me. No, Jacob, every last bit of it worked for you. It worked for you. You know, but when you're going through it, it hurts. I could stand here and tell you what it's like to be with my wife and weep. I could tell you what it's like for her to lose all the hair. To be attacked so savagely with fear and doubt and the absolute wickedness of the enemy. It hurts. It's extremely painful. But you know what the Bible says? Psalm 56, 8. You record my tears in your bottle. And every tear that escapes from your eyes, every sigh of pain that comes out of your lips, every anguish that you feel is heard by God and it is registered with Him as prayer. The psalmist cries out, How long, O God? When? Remember what I said, it takes God a long time to act suddenly. Why does it take it so long? Because He's winding up the spring, good and tight. So when it's released, it has a powerful punch to it. That's why it takes so long. But when you're going through it, you don't think like that. All you know is it hurts. And those tears, God remembers. And the Bible says that those tears, those prayers, arise before God as incense. And those, the Bible teaches us that your prayers actually govern the world. It is not the kings and the queens and the parliaments and the presidents who are ruling this world. It's the prayer of the church. And I believe that with all my heart. They're not controlling things. The prayer ministry of the church is. That's why you're so excited about prayer evening. That's why you can't wait for the prayer meeting, because the governing of the world is in your hands. And when you cry out to God, sometimes we're crying out to God because we're in trials and we're in pain. And in our mind, that's what we're praying about. But I've got news for you. Your prayers are working at a much higher level than that. What God is working out is the affairs of nations as you cry into God with your trials. Nations are being altered because of the prayer of the church. Because from our perspective... We're praying for deliverance and healing from a situation. But from God's perspective, that same prayer is loading the arrow into a worldwide phenomenon. Your prayers are doing a whole lot more than you ever realized. So don't be discouraged in your prayer. I want you to know, brothers, the things that have happened to me have resulted in the furtherance of the gospel. Allow me to illustrate this. I want you to think in the opening chapter of the book of Exodus. When there arose a Pharaoh that did not know Joseph. When the Hebrews were multiplying exceedingly quickly. And the Egyptians were afraid there's going to be more of them than us. And we've got to stop this lest we be conquered by the Hebrews in our midst. And you know the story. They came up with their own Holocaust idea. Every male baby that is to be born is to be drowned in the Nile River. Now I want to ask you, can you possibly imagine the horror? Take your baby, picture your own baby, and imagine it watching it being drowned in the Nile River. You don't think there were some tears that day. Do you think there weren't a couple of men who stood on the shore of the Nile River and said, you're supposed to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and in covenant with us, where are you and why are you allowing this? Can you think of the pressure that came into that nation when God didn't answer their prayer, but the Holocaust continued and continued and continued? Can you imagine the pain and the anguish and the sighing and the losing a reason to even exist when this happens to your family? For years it was never answered. 
God's not responding. A year goes by, ten years go by, a hundred years go by, centuries go by. And all you've got is a backwards push against the people who belong to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It takes God a long time to act suddenly. But church, when God responded, I want to tell you this. Every tear that every mother cried through the centuries was avenged. Every sigh, every hurt, pain, and anguish was answered. How do I know that? Think of the ten plagues. What was the first one? Of the ten plagues, what was the first? The Nile turns to blood. Where did the atrocity begin? By murder in the Nile. When God begins to avenge, what's the first thing he does? The Nile turns to blood. God is going to answer. What's the last of the ten plagues? The death of the firstborn. Where did the atrocity begin? Or the death of the children. Think about it. When God responded, He avenged it all. And yes, it hurts, and yes, it's painful, and yes, the trial is real, and yes, you're crying tears as you're being drawn backwards and more restricted and more confined, and you're being drawn backwards and backwards and backwards and backwards. It hurts, it's painful, you shed a lot of tears. Why God? Why God? Why God? But I have news for you. All your sighs and anxieties and cares and fears and doubts and discouragements and all your tears will be answered by the Lord. Have faith. They will be answered by the Lord. He knows what he is doing. And when but suddenly takes place, it is not just your deliverance that happens. It is the proclamation of the Word of God around the face of the earth. You think you're just praying for Darla. You are praying for worldwide revival. You're praying for a bigger vision than just the healing from a situation. You are praying for the promotion of an international ministry. Hallelujah. It's going to make you forget. You know the devil is so stupid. We said the other day he's a deceiver. He's so good at it that he's even deceived himself. He thinks he's actually going to win. He thinks that if he can push you back far enough, the bull is going to break. But the Bible says, God knows how much pressure you can take. Now, I've had a few discussions with God about that. I said, apparently you think I can take more pressure than I think I can take. But he knows. The devil is deceived. He thinks he's actually going to win. The prime example of his stupidity is putting Jesus on the cross. Can you imagine the horror that came out of hell that day when God says, This is my boy, in whom I am well pleased. And can you imagine the shock to the kingdom of darkness when Jesus says, The kingdom of, of the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. And he goes out to heal the sick. Open the eyes of the blind and raise the dead and cleanse the lepers and open the ears of the deaf and heal the brokenhearted and set the captives free. No wonder the devil wanted to kill him. Immediately the devil instigates the plan to destroy him. He can't even get out of the synagogue that day and the church is so furious with him, they're going to kill him. They're going to take him out and throw him over the cliff. I said to you the other day, when I get to heaven, I have videos that I'm renting. I want to see this. 
how do you have a riot and you want to take the preacher and kill him? And you drag the preacher out over the cliff. And when you got to the cliff, the preacher's not even there. When the whole mass synagogue was making their way that way, the Jesus kind of go, well, excuse me, excuse me. I don't know. How did he get out of that? I don't know. That's why I want to see the video when I get there. We preachers got to imagine things, don't we? The devil didn't succeed in killing him. So the devil says, I've got to stop them. How am I going to do this? And they come up with trick questions. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? That's one of those questions you don't answer. If you say yes, well, then you've lost the opinion of the people. They don't want to pay taxes. If you say no, then you're reported to Caesar as a traitor. I like his answer, don't you? I wish I could think of answers like that that fast. I really do. I wish I had that quickness of intuition and spirit to give those kinds of responses. They can't make anything stick. There's no, they can't trap him in his words, nothing. So what are they going to do? They come up with this blasphemy. And the Sadducees and the Pharisees actually agree together on something here. Blasphemy. And they crucify. But in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 7 and 8, it says, If the princes of this world knew what they were doing, they would have never have crucified the Lord of glory. Because what the devil was trying to do is stop the ministry from spreading. Little did he know that he just helped sacrifice the sins for the sins of the world. You see, he didn't count on the but God of Scripture. They did against Jesus what they determined to do, and they crucified him. Acts 13.30, but God raised him from the dead. But God. And on the resurrection day, suddenly hit, and that arrow was released, and 2,000 years later, it broke gravity, and it is still going. Hallelujah. Think about it, church. Since you and I know that this is how it works, since you and I are enlightened by this knowledge now, when in your life you have a word from God and you believe God has given you a vision and a burden, burst of Him, and when it appears the enemy is able to push the whole thing in the backwards direction, you want to go here, but your life is going this way, this way, this way. Don't think that is strange. Because before you can go forward, the arrow must be loaded backwards. The more pressure against you, the more energy with which the arrow is released when God says, suddenly. I like the ministry of Paul the Apostle where he says in 2 Corinthians 1, 8-10, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant of the trouble that came to us in Asia. How we were pressed out of measure. The spirit of life, without strength, had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead who has delivered and does deliver and in whom we trust will yet deliver us. And all of that pressure, backwards and backwards and backwards and backwards, that he despaired even if he was going to see the light of day. But the ministry of Paul the Apostle is heralded today around the world, and you've got your New Testament because of that man. What happened to Paul has promoted the gospel for every generation since. Does God know what he's doing? Well, what about your life? When you're going through it and the pressure is on you, 
Because you are an enlightened people, because you understand the principle, God is the one who's loading the bow, it's not the devil destroying or confining. Because you understand that, your attitude when this happens is not one of fear. It's not one of despair. It's not one of disillusionment or doubt. Our attitude is one of gratitude. Our attitude is praise. Our attitude is worship. And if you can't praise Him in the situation, if you can't worship Him in the spirit, in the situation, then get filled with the Holy Ghost. Because we worship in spirits and in truth. And we worship Him. Paul said, God, can we stop this for a while? 2 Corinthians 12. Would you remove this from me? Church, what is there about the word no that you don't understand? No, because if I stop drawing back on the bow, you're not going to be very effective. You need to understand that my strength is made perfect in your weakness. So Paul says, therefore, I rejoice. I glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He says, I take pleasure. So do you, right? That's why you do this when trials are on your life. This is Hillsborough Bible Week. I did come to the right place, didn't I? That's why as a believer, when you're being opposed, you understand that no matter what the enemy devises against you, he's the one that's going to be destroyed. The gospel is going to be promoted. And you are the arrow that God is loading into his bow. But God will shoot at them with an arrow. They shall be wounded. Well, I don't know about you. But I think it would be appropriate for you to exercise your faith. Face the wind. Look square at the opposition. Look direct into everything that's pushing you back. And lift your hands. Hallelujah. Anyhow. Hallelujah. Anyhow. Praise Him anyhow. Praise Him anyhow. Glory to God anyway. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.